Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Ido Vogt, Europe correspondent at The New Statesman. You're listening to World Review, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm speaking to Ganeshan Vigna Raja, Senior Research Associate at the Overseas Development Institute, about the background to Sri Lanka's unparalleled economic collapse, the role of debt trap diplomacy in compounding the crisis, and what effect the resignation of the former president will have on the country. We should note that this interview was recorded before the resignation of former President Gotabaya Rajapaksa on the 14th of July. Thank you very much for being here, Mr. Vignavara. I suppose for, for the background to the kind of latest political turmoil that we've seen in Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka for a very long time was seen as a kind of pretty successful country, certainly compared to others in the region. It has a pretty high or had a pretty high GDP per capita, a pretty sizable middle class and one of the most highly educated populations in South Asia. But this latest economic collapse has really seemed to have wiped out quite a lot of that success. So what happened? So Sri Lanka, if you go back in history, is worth trying to understand in order to look at the current context. In a very famous book, uh, Gunnar Myrdal, the Swedish Nobel Prize winning economist, in a book called Asian Drama, which was published in 1968, He predicted that Myanmar, the Philippines, and Sri Lanka had really the best initial conditions for rapid growth. And they'd had colonial institutions, this middle class, and colonial civil service. So he predicted Sri Lanka would be one of those winners. Going a few years forward, in 1980, Paul Eisenman from the World Bank, who was the vice president, wrote this famous article on basic needs. And he saw Sri Lanka as one of those countries that had very high social indicators for its level of per capita income. Now, when you fast forward to 2022, July, where we are, Sri Lanka has come down a lot and it's now defaulted on its foreign debt and is facing a regression in terms of its development indicators. And to sort of understand Sri Lanka's downward trend, you have to think of it as a combination of difficult and poorly implemented development strategy and external events that were beyond our control. And the most important external events that came into play were really the 30 years civil conflict that ended only in 2009, 
that was very devastating on economic growth prospects as well as attracting foreign investment and creating a market-oriented economy. And then there were other events. There was the tsunami that hit Sri Lanka back in the 1990s. And you also have more recently external events such as the COVID economic shock, which caused the economy to contract by minus 3.6%. And that was a big hit on Sri Lanka, like in many other countries. And just as Sri Lanka was recovering in 2021, you had the Russia-Ukraine conflict, which was another major event. It brought high inflation of 50 plus percent with spiraling food and fuel prices. And adding to all this, you have policy mismanagement, particularly by the Gotabe Rajapaksa administration and his brother, Mahindra Rajapaksa, who have ruled the country as head of state for about 12 years in the two kind of periods. Gotabe was from 2019 to about mid-July, and Mahinda was a period uh, in the early 2000s to about 2014. And the policy missteps uh, really started with Mahinda. So he borrowed money for low-return Belt and Road projects, leaving us in a risk of a major Chinese debt trap storyline. And uh, Gotabe's uh, mistakes were really when the economy started being in a difficult phase after COVID hit, he and his advisors refused to go to the International Monetary Fund to deal with the balance of payments crisis. That was his first mistake. Another very important mistake that he made was this attempt to switch overnight from chemical fertilizer to organic fertilizer without preparing farmers properly for this switch. And also the country didn't really have much organic fertilizer. So that has caused a major problem in the agricultural sector and devastated tea exports and food production. A third major mistake that he made was essentially tax cuts worth a couple of billion dollars at least, which in 2019 were not even wanted by business, but he was trying to win the election. And then they tried to defend the exchange rate by using the scarce reserves that we had. I think $5 billion or so reserves were used. And these mistakes compounded the problem of external events. So this is part of the underlying issues of where Sri Lanka is today. So we've got this confluence of events, as you said, internal mismanagement combined with external events that have affected many parts of the world. The pandemic obviously affected the entire world. The Ukraine war has is, is affected much of the world in different ways. But it seems like Sri Lanka has it particularly bad. And so what have been the effects of this economic crisis? There's been an economic collapse in Sri Lanka that seems unparalleled anywhere in the world, even though many of the external factors are in common to other countries too. So the basic issue here was, whereas in the 60% of low-income countries which are facing debt distress, or 38 countries according to the World Bank, I think they're really worried about at present, the Sri Lankan case was really this policy mismanagement, right? There was this focus on homegrown solutions to deal with the balance of payments crisis that was coming and a shortage of dollars. And what Gotabe Rajapaksa's administration tried to do was to close the economy to foreign trade, particularly imports. And secondly, this set of issues where he tried to grow more food using organic fertilizer, which the country didn't have, and the farmers didn't quite know how to do that transition. And then the central bank printed money, basically, to try to get easy credit going. And that was also inflationary. So this combination of things and then getting government to run business as well was another kind of misstep. And this combination of factors is a bit unique for Sri Lanka, these homegrown solutions. And this has failed miserably. So 
If you take Sri Lanka's decline and try to explain it, 50% were due to external events and 50% was due to policy mismanagement under the Gotavi Rajapaksa administration. And then you add on top of this uh, cronyism and corruption, which were also rife in Sri Lanka during this uh, period. And, and so there's this combination of factors, which is pretty unique to our downfall uh, as a debt defaulted country with a very severe economic crisis. And so what's the, what's the effect of that economic crisis been on the ground? What does life look like in Sri Lanka right now? You're, you're in Sri Lanka. There's a fuel shortage, shortages of basic goods. What's life like in, in Sri Lanka right now? So from my window, I can see three mile long petrol queues where people have been sleeping in their car for three days. And that's really quite uh, scary and also very unfortunate. And there are some 30,000 drivers of this tuk-tuk who are waiting in lines. And they were seen as self-made entrepreneurs buying their own tuk-tuk and leveraging themselves. And they have no money to pay for their tooks and they're in danger of losing their tooks. So that's one very scary factor for them. Then you have the bigger phenomenon of what we may call stagflation, which is hyperinflation of 50% plus. And the central bank is talking about 70% inflation by the end of the year. And that is fueled by this Russia-Ukraine crisis. And it's resulted in higher food and fuel prices and has really hit people on fixed incomes, which are a lot of civil servants and pensioners and others. That's terrible. People are down to one meal a day and many families are suffering terribly. Another impact we are seeing is a negative growth this year and economic growth, according to projections, maybe minus 4% to minus 6%. This is much worse than the down that we had from COVID. The economy declined by minus 3.6%. And poverty is also set to rise. Some 750,000 Sri Lankans uh, will be new poor meaning they will be living on less than $3.20 a day. And malnutrition is also rife, particularly amongst children. So this is a really bad kind of set of events. And it partly helps explain the discontent on the street, where hungry, poor people have taken to desperate measures and have undertaken mass that we see on the street. So this is one of these classic examples of a state that is floundering due to mismanagement, as well as these external events that have seen people out on the streets. And it's been really quite devastating. So people feel they have nothing to lose. And that's a really scary and very difficult situation to be. You spoke about the role of debt trap diplomacy in compounding this crisis. I wondered if you could talk about what that's looked like. Sri Lanka is often spoken about as one of the kind of preeminent examples of what some Western countries call debt trap diplomacy. There was uh, infamously this one billion dollar port project financed by China, which was handed over to Beijing on a 99 year lease after Sri Lanka was unable to meet repayments. What role has debt trap diplomacy played in this crisis? So Sri Lanka has had a long diplomatic friendship with China. Sri Lanka was one of the first countries to recognize China and also support its membership of the United Nations. In the 1950s, Sri Lanka and China did what they call a rubber rice pact, where we swapped uh, rubber from Sri Lanka, where we abandoned in rubber for rice from China, and it was a barter deal. And from those days, the relationship has morphed into a commercial relationship with the rise of China on the global stage after it joined the World Trade Organization and opened up to world trade and investment. And China was very willing, uh, even well before the Belt and Road uh, project uh, came into being in 2013, to give Sri Lanka commercial loans for infrastructure development. And this was partly linked to the rise of Mahinda Rajapaksa, Sri Lankan politician who 
thought that China was really the admirable development model, that infrastructure, the development of China offered the way out for Sri Lanka to grow very fast at the end of the civil conflict in 2009. And he wanted to follow that. And he asked the Chinese to come and they had surpluses and they provided lots of money for projects basically, in, which was in southern Sri Lanka, the district from which Mahindra Rajapaksa came. And they built a port, Habantota port, they built an airport, they built a conference center, they built highways connecting Colombo, which is the commercial center to Habantota and so on. And it was seen as the way to, to grow very rapidly. Sri Lanka borrowed very heavily from China. Sri Lanka's foreign debt is around $51 billion, although there are suggestions that some of those numbers are underestimates. The bulk of that is held by private capital markets, some half of that. And China accounts for $7.6 billion today. So China is not the largest part of our debt. It's private creditors. But China is probably the largest bilateral creditor to Sri Lanka. And uh, when we come to 2022, in January, it was the case that Gotabe Rajapaksa asked China for a debt moratorium. The Chinese foreign minister was visiting and there was a famous meeting that was reported and Sri Lanka asked China for debt forgiveness or at least a moratoria for three years and also for credits to be able to import fuel. China has been hesitant on this front. And I think part of the reason could be that China faces a real dilemma. On the one hand, it wants to have this warm friendship with Sri Lanka and certainly take advantage of the commercial opportunities that Chinese capital and the Belt and Road Initiative certainly can offer. But China is worried about forgiving Sri Lanka's debt and giving it moratoria because there's a queue of countries it worries about, which will also point to failed debt issues around failed BRI projects and want forgiveness. So China worries that if it grants Sri Lanka special concessions, a queue of countries in Africa and elsewhere will also want such terms. Another particular reason could be that China, which is a G2 country challenging the supremacy of the United States, uh, doesn't want its brand associated with a failing or floundering economy like Sri Lanka's. And there could be yet a third reason, which is that China is now experiencing a COVID surge and is increasingly turning to a zero COVID policy and uh, is more worried about its own economy, which is seeing a decarceration in growth and less inclined to be generous globally. My own sense is that China should join international efforts to help sort out Sri Lanka's economy through the International Monetary Fund. And China should also provide assistance to Sri Lankans who are suffering from poverty while uh, this kind of restructuring program through the IMF can take place. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 Euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale. Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are? That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display? A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, 
technical and quite, well, obvious. And Maria will check on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, as we've said, Sri Lanka is having a really terrible economic crisis, but many of the factors that have led to the crisis, so, for example, a drop in tourism in a heavy heavily tourism-dependent economy because of COVID, the war in Ukraine causing higher energy and foodstuff prices. Many of these factors are not unique to Sri Lanka. Do you think we're going to see similar economic crises in other developing countries driven by similar factors? Yes, I I think this crisis that we are seeing in debt will be manifest across the developing world. Some 60% of low-income countries today, or at least 38 countries, according to the World Bank, are at risk of debt distress. What will determine whether they go into debt distress situations and eventually default is the strength of their foreign reserve buffers to protect against a balance of payments issues and what kind of macroeconomic framework a government will adopt to try to deal with the crisis. And I think the Sri Lankan experience offers some very interesting and salient lessons on how to avoid making the kind of mistakes that countries may make if they are going into a debt situation, an amber light, if you like, rather than a red light. The first is 
there can be benefits of going to the International Monetary Fund early. In the Sri Lankan case, we hesitated for 18 months or so after COVID hit from seeking IMF assistance. And we talked about these homegrown remedies because people were worried about an IMF program bringing austerity. You know, an IMF program usually brings higher taxes, a floating exchange rate, removal of subsidies, and so on. And the people worried about that in government. Uh, they didn't look at the advantages of IMF assistance, such as confidence it would bring uh, to investors and others, and also international capital market borrowing once again, and also finance from multilaterals. Uh, Sri Lanka made a U-turn later. A second very important lesson is that you must have social safety nets to mitigate the poverty and economic instability. Sri Lanka has a British-style welfare system as well as an anti-poverty program called the Samudri program, which supports 1.2 million families. However, these mechanisms were insufficient to stem the growing poverty and social discontent in Sri Lanka as rising food and fuel inflation came. And the country didn't really have enough fiscal space to provide transfers for its people. So I think assistance from the World Bank is very necessary and one has to start negotiating this early. So you have a World Bank funded cash transfer program targeted towards the poor. A third very important crisis measure is really to have very good crisis management capabilities. And there are two aspects to this. The first is you really have to have a strong central bank, which is independent of political interference. And in Sri Lanka, sadly, we had a governor who was effectively a politician who manipulated the central bank and avoided it making harsh decisions on interest rates, for instance, or trying to control inflation. And they just printed money. So we really need an independent central bank, which is one aspect. And the second aspect is that there were four or five officials who kept telling the president, no, the economy is okay. It's going to turn around. And they were sadly mistaken. Whether they were fearful of him or just were believing in their own rhetoric of these homegrown solutions, one is unsure. But in an ideal world, really, we need a US-style President's Council of Economic Advisors, which should be mandated with the objective of offering independent economic advice to the president. And there should be independent people offering good advice. And the last important lesson is really the importance of having honest communication from the state to the public to avoid the spread of misinformation. And what we had was really government propaganda, which resulted in confusion and misunderstanding about Sri Lanka's crisis and the IMF program. And the public relied on social media, which can be very useful, but it provides variable quality data and analysis. So in an ideal world, you need a good government information. You need staff by media professionals dedicated to honest messaging about the economy. Now, there's no one-size-fits-all solution to Sri Lanka's missteps and what should be done in other countries, but maybe these lessons can be tailored to other countries. So as we're speaking, protesters have occupied the residences and offices of the prime minister and president. It seems like the leaders who are at least partly responsible for this economic collapse are on their way out. Will new leadership be able to help extricate Sri Lanka from this crisis, in your view, or whatever's coming next? Yes, so a new president is supposed to be elected by parliament on the 20th of July, and that new president will serve the remaining couple of years of Gotabe Rajapaksa's term, and after which we will have elections. Whether those general elections will come earlier, I'm not sure, but in any case, a new cabinet will also be formed and they have quite an agenda to deal with. The first item is really to conclude negotiations on an IMF program for Sri Lanka of three to four billion dollars. And this program will 
provide some relief, but it will also provide really confidence that Sri Lanka's economy is being looked at properly and managed properly. Second, very important imperative is really to communicate the benefits of the IMF program to everyone and to also ensure there's cross-party agreement that Sri Lanka will do this austerity. And related to that, a third point is that we need to have comprehensive structural reforms to make the Sri Lankan economy more market-oriented and more attractive to foreign investors and foreign trade, as well as maintaining a safety net for the poor so that we can take advantage of the stable economy that may arise in the future and make the country attractive to take a kind of a sort of positive growth path. A fourth very important issue in this is to have political reforms. And these political reforms are very important. They have been talking on the street and also in parliament about abolishing the executive presidency. We have a French-style system with the president and the prime minister at the moment, and the executive presidency in Sri Lanka's history has not been uh, something that has been effective. You have two leaders and then you have an all-powerful person. And if you have a person who is uh, lacking in the skill set and also uh, tinged with these uh, issues of corruption and also mismanagement, it, it becomes a very difficult polarizing position. So I think abolishing this and going towards a parliamentary democracy a la Westminster style would be very useful. Coupled with that, we have to have very strong anti-corruption processes. And this means asset declarations from all parliamentarians. This means having a very strong anti-corruption office backed by the United Nations, because I'm not sure if our domestic mechanism uh, are sufficient to, in, to ensure that anti-corruption is properly investigated. The Attorney General has to be freed from political interference, and the press has to be supported to be free and providing um, accurate and proper investigative journalism. So these are really the minimum of a program. The last point I want to make on this is that the protesting youth are really uh, disillusioned with government and so on. And my best suggestion to them is that they should protest uh, very peacefully rather than some elements are, are violent in that group. But they should more importantly join the democratic process and stand for election when they come. And we have elections at different levels and get elected through the ballot, if you like, and then make the real changes that are needed, particularly in governance, but also in putting Sri Lanka forward as a stable economy. And I think with political will and the right policies and an IMF program and political restructuring, Sri Lanka stands a sporting chance of turning things around in the next two to three years, if we are lucky as well. Vigna Raja, thank you very much. This has been World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend and leave us a nice review. Our producer has been May Robson. Thanks for listening and until next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So, can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. 
Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.